Hi everyone and welcome to Bloodstream from Leukemia Care, the UK's only podcast about blood cancer. I'm Charlotte, Leukemia Care's Advocacy Officer. So this month we've treated you to two episodes. We are focusing on women's issues to start March as the 8th is International Women's Day. Our second podcast is all about Kate Stallard. If you've been following Leukemia Care for a while, you might recognise Kate. She was diagnosed with acute promyelocytic leukemia a couple of years ago. She's talked about her symptoms and her story for our Spot Leukemia campaign and is even now a trustee at Leukemia Care. I chatted to Kate about her life post-treatment and what support is lacking, particularly for women, after a diagnosis of blood cancer. So um, I was diagnosed with acute promyelocytic leukemia in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, I initially had two rounds of chemo and after suffering loads and loads of side effects, um, I eventually managed to get into remission. Um, but during my third round of chemo, um, the leukemia came back and this time it came back in my central nervous system. Um, and the reason I sort of spotted that was because I started to feel poorly again and um, my vision was affected. I had double vision. Um, so the chemo was abandoned and we went straight into um, intrathecal chemo, which is where they inject it into your fluid in your in your spinal fluid. Um, so that was pretty awful. I had sort of 18 lumbar punctures with that over the next few weeks. And then alongside that, I also started arsenic treatment as well. Um, I luckily managed to get back into remission and then I underwent an auto stem cell transplant in September 2017. So it was a really full-on year of treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, sort of a year and a bit later, I'm still in remission. Um, things are going well. There's been a few complications along the way, but yeah, I'm still in remission and sort of hopefully on my way up now. So yeah, that's my my diagnosis and treatments. Great, thank you. So, going back to um, your diagnosis to start with, so um, what were would you say the symptoms were that alerted you to something not being quite right? Yeah, so I, I felt kind of ropey, for want of a better word, for a while mm. um, leading up to it, for a few weeks leading up to it. Um, I just felt extreme exhaustion. Um, normal everyday tasks for me were taking me sort of twice as long to do because I was so tired. I found myself falling asleep a lot, just out of the blue. Um, even just walking my dogs, I'd have to stop a few times to kind of catch my breath. It felt like I'd sort of done a, a full-on run, even though I was just having a stroll. Yeah. Uh, walking up the stairs was, was tiring. Um, so that was a big, a big symptom. Um, and then I was... Um, of having night sweats as well that were really, really awful. Like, not just your normal night sweat, like I'd be drenched through. I'd have to change my pyjamas, change the bed clothes throughout the night and things like that. Yeah. Um, I had a really, really heavy headache, but it wasn't your normal headache. It was like a pounding. I could hear my heartbeat in my ears, and it was like a pounding all the time. And it got to the point where it was so loud, sometimes I couldn't hear people talking because it was just all I could hear was my mm. heartbeat in my ears. And then the, the final sort of massive symptom for me that, that pushed me to go to GP was that I started my period and it was exceptionally heavy, mm-hmm. um, heavier than the normal. Um, it just didn't seem to stop. Uh, 
went on for, you know, a few days longer than the normal. Um, and I really, really run down and achy, like I was kind of starting to get the flu or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. The, I guess the reason we're chatting today is that it's International Women's Day this month and obviously <laughs> periods are unique to women um yeah. so do, you said you think that was the one thing that made you go to the doctors do you think I don't know do you think you would have gone if that hadn't happened if you hadn't noticed something was wrong because it's something you're so used to I think it was definitely a factor that pushed me to go mm. I'd been thinking about going to the GPs for a few days yeah just because I've been feeling so so ill um, and I thought, you know, maybe it's just the flu coming. And mm. then I was kind of waiting for the flu to come out, if you like, to yeah. sort of have the, the flu symptoms. Uh, but it didn't. And then when I started to have this exceptionally heavy period, um, yeah, I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a GP over the phone. And she was sort of saying, really, you need to go and see your GP about this mm-hmm. because there's tablets you can take to kind of control the heavy bleeding. Okay. Um, so I decided, yeah, that's what I do then. So yeah, it was definitely a factor that, that pushed me to go and see my GP because I felt in my body that something wasn't right. You know, this was abnormal. Yeah. So um, I didn't think it was anything serious, but I just wanted to, to go and, and see my GP. Um, so yeah, it's definitely a change in that um, sort of monthly cycle pushed yeah. me to go and see the GP yeah definitely I mean as women we we know our own bodies we know mm. you know I was 30 when I was diagnosed I knew kind of how it was every month and I was always yeah. sort of regular and everything was normal so for something to change it was definitely a prompt to go to the GP yeah yeah and you didn't would you say I know you said you chatted about it with your friend who's a GP would you say connected it to the other symptoms or was it something you were thinking oh no this is like I've got two things going on here I I thought I was anemic yeah because I'd spoken to my sister who'd had aplastic anemia um a few years before which is a a serious disorder um and so she knew what it felt like to Mm. be anemic and she when I spoke to her about it um, she noticed that, like, my gums were quite pale, my skin was quite pale, I was tired, I had this funny headache with the hearing my heart beat in my ears, and then this extremely heavy period. So she said, it sounds like you are anemic, you know, you've got this heavy period, and therefore it's made you anemic. So I did kind of tie the, the things up together, um, but I didn't ever sort of think, oh, I wonder what the cause is there, mm, you know? Yeah. Um, I just thought, I'm 30, I'm young, you know, I'm, I'm fit. I was, like, doing loads of exercise and um, eating well. So, yeah, I didn't ever think it would be anything serious, but I, I did kind of put a link with all the symptoms together, yeah. Mm. And we've had a few... Uh, people telling their story and saying that they've had the same heavy period come along at some point during their symptoms emerging and not really connecting it with everything else so if we can get you know people to think oh it might be one one um different manifestations of one thing then yeah that would be really helpful so um exactly and if it's out of the norm as mm. well like like it was for me you know I this was abnormal for me um, yeah. and it was so 
severe. You know, it wasn't just like, um, I don't want to go into too much sort of graphic detail <laughs> and, and upset people, but it wasn't the norm. Like I was having to sort of, it was, I was bleeding through clothes. Yeah. Um, and sort of that was, it was severe, you know, mm. it wasn't just like, oh, it's slightly heavier than normal. Um, so it was a drastic change and it, it definitely prompted me to think, right, okay, what, what's happening here? Um, and the fact that I had all the other sort of symptoms as well made me want mm. to go and, and speak to somebody about it. Yeah. So I would definitely say if you notice a change, um, go and see someone, just get it checked, definitely. go for a blood test. Yep, that's, that's our message. Um, yeah. So also around like the the di- time you were diagnosed, you after you went to the doctors, you've talked about how there was a bit of a, a mix up with uh, how the doctor didn't really think what you were experiencing was anything as serious as a blood cancer. And there's been a bit of talk lately uh, in the media about how doctors might not take women's pain specifically seri- less seriously, oh. but what was what was that time of you know um what was that time of misdiagnosis I suppose what was it like for you how did you feel during that time did you feel like you weren't being listened to yeah I did um I felt like I wasn't being taken seriously mm. um I really that GPs have a hard job and you know if people are coming to them and saying I'm tired I don't have much energy and things like that, then they, they, that can be a whole range of, of problems. It's difficult for GPs to to listen to patients who come in and say, mm-hmm. you know, I'm tired and I don't have much energy and things like that and I get a headache. You know, that, is, that can sort of be symptoms for a whole range of, of problems. Yeah. Um, but I think for myself, I was very specific with my symptoms. Um I described the headaches, the pounding, the heartbeat, yeah, um, the fact that I couldn't walk my dog without having to stop a few times, uh, the night sweat. Bruising, again, is a huge, was a huge symptom for me. I was mm. actually covered in bruises and I couldn't remember how I got them. Um, I was sort of bleeding when I was brushing my teeth. My gums were bleeding. I was having the odd nosebleed and then... Um, also, I had these little purple spots on my jawline, which turned out to be a thing called sweet syndrome, which is actually linked to leukemia. Um, so there was a whole host of symptoms for me, and also, of course, the heavy period. Um, mm. And I just feel like I was not taken seriously by the GP. Um, I was just sort of told, go, go away and eat more spinach. Mm. I didn't feel... You know, I said I felt like I was anemic and that the response was go and eat more more spinach and iron-rich foods then. Um, and when I said about my period being heavy and that I was actually bleeding through clothes every couple of hours, um, I was advised, well, it's just a heavy period. Mm. Um, and that was it. There was no blood test taken. She didn't look at my bruises. So it was, it was really tricky for me because I felt like yeah I wasn't being taken seriously you know you know your own body yeah um and and I'm not one that would go to the GP very often it was only when things were sort of serious that I would go yeah um and so I I did feel this was serious and given my sister's past history with a a blood disorder um which again I flagged up to the GP um and it was dismissed and I get the feeling now 
didn't know what aphasic anemia was mm. or how serious it was. Um, and so I wish, you know, they would have just have asked me, what is it? Yeah. <laughs> what, what treatment do you have? Yeah. Um, yeah. I did, I had to beg for a blood test sort of advised that I would have to come back in a week's time because it wasn't urgent um, and then I could have a blood test done and and so I was sent home and it was only when um, I spoke to my friend um, the next day who's the GP that I'd been speaking to yeah on the phone anyway and sort of said you know this is what happened and she was kind of incredulous and said why didn't they offer you a blood test why didn't they give you drugs to stop your period you know what what's going on there you need to go back so alarm bells were already ringing in my head. Yeah. And, right. Um, again, I never thought it was as serious as blood cancer because it just never crossed my mind. Um, but the next, so two days after I'd been to see the GP initially, I then developed a, a temperature and I felt absolutely horrendous. Mm. I just felt so ill. Um, yeah, I did not feel good at all. I still obviously had my heavy period. I had all of the symptoms. I had to literally crawl up the stairs because my head was pounding so much that I just felt like it was going to explode. Um, and that's when I then sort of sought extra help um, and got in contact with an emergency GP who was brilliant. Um, really, really lovely. Mm. Just completely took me seriously. Um, it was one o'clock in the morning on a Saturday um, and I was there at the GP's after hours and I just turned up, I drove myself there in the middle of the night and I said, I feel so ill. She took one look at me and said, yeah, there's something seriously wrong here. Did a urine sample, did a blood test, everything. She made me take my clothes off so she could look at the bruises and examine them. She took down all my sister's history of aphastic anemia and did a temperature check, blood pressure, the whole lot, you know, mm. and sent off the blood test for emergency kind of testing. And I'm convinced that that GP saved my life because if she'd have sent me home without doing any of that, then I'm not sure I would have made it you know, mm, yeah. here today. Um, and so within a couple of hours of me seeing that GP, she was on the phone to me and saying, get, get yourself to A&E, you know, this is really serious. Um, yeah. You need emergency treatment. And I did, got myself to A&E and then spent the next six weeks in hospital. Um, so yeah, it was, I was then taken seriously and that sh that should have happened the first time I went. So mm. I guess what I'm saying is to people, if they're sort of after a bit of advice, if they're feeling these symptoms or know of somebody that they they love who is feeling these symptoms, is to go to the GP and say, look, this is abnormal. I don't normally feel like this. This mm. has come on quite, quite suddenly. You know, might explain, describe the headache and the fact that it is kind of a pounding, if, if that's how you're feeling. Describe the night sweats. They're not just you get a little bit sweaty. It's like you're drenched. Um, explain all of your symptoms in great detail and just say, look, I desperately need a blood test and it needs to be urgent. I can't wait a week for a blood test. I need to have it yeah. now. Yeah. And um, really push for it because if, you know, these symptoms for me were totally abnormal. And yeah, I knew something wasn't right, but I wasn't really listened to. Mm. I guess, I mean, obviously that was 
really unfortunate for you, but it it's stories like this that have helped us develop the spot leukemia campaign and the because <laughs> you represent the two separate sides of the public need to know what the symptoms are and we're trying to encourage them to speak up if they don't feel because if they don't feel right because they should know their body and they do know their body and then obviously we need to help GPs to learn the symptoms more and I think your story illustrates both those things unfortunately but also in in a way that's really great for for the messages we're trying to get out there so that's really yeah yeah Yeah. that's really great exactly and I realized like that blood cancer you know not many GPs are going to see many cases of blood Mm. cancer throughout their careers and so you know it's not like they're seeing these every week um yeah (laughs) and it's kind of a case of you know appreciating that it's difficult for the GPs to to perhaps spot these symptoms but also giving them the knowledge and the empowering them to think okay well if a patient comes in you know just displaying these symptoms to me then maybe I should do a blood test you know mm-hmm. just and see where it goes um so yeah it's I'm I'm not bashing GPs or anything like that I realize yeah. how hard it is so it's just the case of like you said like empowering people and putting out the symptoms spotters and checkers and things out there so that it rings alarm bells if somebody comes in saying they've got these symptoms yeah exactly yeah um so Luckily, you're you're in good health now. Is, would that be yeah. would that be fair to say you you've come through a stem cell transplant, which must have been awful. Um, um, but you're now in remission. Um, but you, obviously you've got a few side effects that I guess a lot of cancer patients would would resonate with. Could you tell us a bit about how your fertility was affected by your treatment? Yeah. So for me, that was. One of the first questions I asked when they said, you know, you've got cancer was, okay, how's it going to affect my fertility? And right from the beginning, I was told, well, it will most likely make you infertile. Mm. Um, And for me, I was 30 when I was diagnosed. I didn't have kids, but I always wanted them. You know, it was always part of my plan to have kids. Mm. Um, And so it was devastating. Like, honestly, that was the worst almost the worst thing about being told I've got cancer like that was horrible for me yeah um and so things like acute leukemia on the cancer are aggressive and require immediate emergency treatment um you generally don't have time to go ahead with any kind of fertility preserving treatment in terms of like egg freezing um and I know during the first few days after the immediate diagnosis, I asked if I could go through the egg freezing process. Mm. Um, and they did investigate it um, and asked the women's hospital, but it, I was deemed too poorly to go through with the treatment at the time. I wouldn't have been able to have a general anaesthetic if I'd have had to have the actual egg freezing, um, egg harvesting process anyway. And they said to me, you know, you won't make it through a month of yeah. of treatment you won't be here if you don't have the chemo straight away so there was nothing I could do about it I had to just sit back and and, and let the chemo sort of drip into my veins knowing what it all the damage it was doing mm. but at the same time it was trying to save my life so it was awful it was a really awful time um 
And then when I'd had a few rounds of chemo, um, I asked for a sort of um, hormone blood test to mm-hmm. see what the damage was. And they said it's, it's unknown at the moment. We're not sure what the damage is. Um, but, you know, you might might still have some form of fertility at the end of this. So that was my one hope that I held. Um, when I relapsed and then had to have the arsenic, um, again, it was like a double whammy blow because that, again, was going to affect my fertility. Yeah. Um, so after I'd had all the arsenic and chemo, I asked my then try priest process before I went ahead with the stem cell transplant because I knew that when I'd had the stem cell transplant and the total body irradiation that goes with it that would completely 100% make me infertile Mm -hmm. so they agreed that I could take a month to have the um, egg freezing process so I went ahead with it and it the beginnings of the IVF sort of process. Yeah. So you're injecting yourself with various um, hormones and things um, and going for weekly sort of scans. Um, and it was a really a mixed emotion I had at the time because I was just pinning all my hopes on this one process. Um, but I knew at the same time that all of the treatment I'd had had pretty much done a lot of damage to me. Yeah. Um, and on the day that I was due to sort of go in and have the egg harvest, um, I was told that the um, treatment that I already had had done too much damage and there was no eggs left. So that was it, end of the road for me. Mm. Um, and it was absolutely devastating. Like, it floored me more so than the actual cancer diagnosis itself. Yeah. Um, and so I went into the transplant knowing that that was it then. Once I'd had this total body irradiation, that was it. Um, my chances of being a, a mother sort of naturally and having a biological child of my own was, was over. Um, and it was terrifying, actually. Um, and I remember feeling just so down during the transplant process, which is a lengthy process and you, you get yeah. very, very poorly. Um, I just felt really down and I should have been feeling kind of almost elated thinking this is saving my life, you know, um, but I didn't. I just felt really, really low. Um, and I think even now, you know, a year and uh, almost a year and a half post transplant, I'm still dealing with that, you know, and now I'm in medical menopause because of the transplant. So mm-hmm. it, it stopped, you know, it was, a, it was an abrupt stop to that um, kind yeah. of, fertility um so yeah it's been traumatic and it still is and I don't think I'll ever sort of fully come to terms with it because you don't you feel sad you're grieving for the fact that you've lost this this part of you really these hopes and dreams they've just gone um and it seems like they've gone overnight really through no fault of your own it's just cancer's done it so you almost feel like you've got nobody to feel angry at because did it you know um so yeah it's been really really tough and I think for a lot of women and men who go through this it's it's exceptionally tough um Mm. and it's one of these things that you kind of feel nervous and a bit scared to talk about because it makes people feel uncomfortable or um awkward 
So, yeah, it's, it's one side effect that has had the biggest impact on me. Yeah. So, I've got a couple of questions from that, but what would, firstly, what would you say to people who feel um, the same way as you do in that they, they're, think, they're thinking about what they've lost when other people who probably quite wrongly shouldn't think this, but think they should be positive about being, you know, alive and surviving this, what would you say to people who are thinking the same way as you and perhaps feeling a little bit guilty about it? Do you have any advice? Yeah. Yeah, so I've thought about this a lot, actually. Um, mm. And I think that this kind of misconception, or at least I can only speak from my sort of personal experience, that um, you go through all of this and you, if you're lucky enough you end up in remission, which mm. is amazing. As a, a cancer patient, even if you've been told you're in remission, um, there's always going to be a massive part of you that thinks, when is it coming back or is it going to come back? So every sort of ache or pain or any difference in your body, you think, well, this is it, it's come back. Yeah. Um, so that never goes away. And I definitely felt like, cancer has changed me as a person and how I am you know I'm not the same person I was before I had this um and I think that there's a misconception that if you get through treatment and you manage to to reach remission that that should be you know um that should make you happy and you're back to normal now treatment's ended your hair's grown back for instance if it fell out or you look okay look healthy so therefore you should just get on and go back to to normal as you were before kind of thing Mm. um but it's not always like that like I I like to use the analogy that I feel like I'm a, a a piece of pottery that's been smashed and it's been stuck back together but there's pieces missing and it, it doesn't look quite right. It's kind of slightly broken and yeah. that's how I feel. Um, and I would just say to people, you know, what we've been through is traumatic and life-changing and to just take time and be gentle on yourself, um, you know, talk about it if, if that's what you feel helps. Cry, you know, experience all your emotions um, and just be aware that people don't fully understand it until or if they go through something similar. Um, You know, life has changed and your perspectives on life and your reasons for living kind of shift and develop um, during treatment, post-treatment. And actually, it's kind of post-treatment, I think, that most people need extra support. But Mm. that's the time when a lot of the support they've experienced throughout the journey or uh, I know journey isn't the best word for this but throughout the kind of cancer um, treatment they've had um, that support has kind of been there for them friends and family and medical team and then post-treatment it kind of goes away um, because people think you're okay again but that is the time when you need it the most Um, so yeah I would just say people be gentle on yourself um, and try not to, to rush things because there's a whole world of emotions going on and feelings and yeah it, it's very difficult to deal with it all. Yeah I guess by asking you to talk about that it's kind of normalizing that feeling as well because I mean yeah I've <laughs> I've heard 
of I don't have any family experience of people with cancer, uh, fortunately. But you know, when even when you see people with cancer in the media, you always so they don't talk about it anymore once they're fine and they're back to work. And I'm thinking of people, you know, like news readers and things like that. So I guess we need to talk about yeah. the fact that <laughs> that doesn't happen for everyone. So yeah, 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 exactly. And for me personally, like it's hard to talk about it. It's hard because it brings up kind of emotions mm. again. But I feel like it's cathartic for me to talk about it. And I know that I'm helping other people in my situation by talking about it because they get in contact or I get messages or, you know, whatever. I get feedback to say thanks for talking about it, you know. Um, And you've also, like, I take comfort in hearing others talk about it because it makes me feel like I'm not alone. Yeah. and they get the the feelings that I'm experiencing. You know, everyone has a different experience. Everyone has different treatments and outcomes, and all sorts of things happen along the way. But it's um, when you kind of talk, speak about it, and talk about it, you then connect with other people, and you feel like part of this kind of community where you're not alone. You're not so isolated anymore. You're speaking to people who kind of get it. They get what you're going through. They understand. Um, and also, I think there's a lot of, when you talk to your friends and family, there's a lot of kind of wanting to protect them yeah. um, and not upset them by telling them how you're actually feeling. Um, and I found, you know, a lot of my friends didn't really know how to respond to me, especially with the fertility thing, because I'm in my 30s and nearly all of my friends are settled down or settling down and starting to have kids and mm. and that is like even harder for me because I just feel so disconnected from that now yeah um upsetting you know um I'm happy for them I'm super happy for them and I love sort of seeing their kids and all that and experiencing that with them but I'm just equally as sad for the fact that I can't um, and so to then sit in front of them and say, look, this is what's going on. I'm dealing with this huge kind of black cloud over me. Um, and, and I'm so upset that I've lost my facility. You know, it's hard for them to to respond to that when it's, they're in that position where they're able to have kids and, and, and are having kids. Yeah. So to then speak out and find other people that are like, yeah, this happened to me too. You know, I can't have kids anymore. I've had chemo or I've had this, that and the other and it means I can't have kids. Um, you kind of think, okay, I'm not alone. There's other people out there and you can support mm. each other, whether that be through, you know, social media or support groups or online forums or however you want to get that support. You know, there's people out there and that for me has made me want to, to actually speak out about it. Yeah, I guess to say you don't want to be defined by what's happened to you, but at the same time you still need support in like going forward with the fact that things are different. So it's like two different yeah. conflicts. I feel. Yeah, totally. Because you don't just want to be known as you know that girl who had cancer. Mm. Um, because that's not me. Like yes, I had cancer, it, and it was bloody awful. But. Yeah. There's also a side of me that is, you know, I'm still me. I still have the same sort of hopes and dreams in life. It's just some of them have been quashed or some of them have been taken away from me. Um, 
And yeah, there's a conflict. There's a, do I speak out about it because it's so private? I'm quite a private person. And so I find it kind of a bit scary that um, I'm saying these things that are like my innermost thoughts and emotions. But I realise how it can help other people and it is helping other people. And so I'm not going to be quiet. You know, I am going to stand up and talk about it. Um, And I just think there's so many people out there who are doing that now. And it's brilliant. It's so good. Helping to kind of normalise it, take away the taboos around it um, and the awkwardness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So we've talked a lot about the the emotional um the emotional effects of both cancer treatment and sort of fertility treatment but do you feel like it's the psychological help that's missing um from support around fertility for cancer patients is that the key thing you feel like is missing for everyone well i mean i can't speak for everyone mm. because you know everyone has different um healthcare experience should we say um but for me yeah it's hugely lacking um you know I was dealing with this fertility treatment alongside my cancer treatment and I was having all sorts of treatments whilst it was still going on and um to the point where I was sort of an inpatient in hospital for some of it whilst I was still having to travel to a different hospital to then have the IVF treatment um which is it's really uh, exhausting and emotionally draining um, yeah and as a single person it was hard you know having to go through it by yourself you know you haven't got your partner there to support you so I found that tough too um, so in terms of the kind of psychological support um, I was given a leaflet from the hospital where I had the IVF treatment um, with a phone number for their counselling service which I called and I left a message and I never heard back from them. Um, so although it was offered, it wasn't actually there. The treat, the help wasn't there. Mm. Um, and that was devastating. And then from then on, I then went into the stem cell transplant and so was kind of thrown into to the treatment again and was an inpatient for weeks in hospital. Um, and the only psychological support I had then was from the nurses and, and medical team who were amazing. They were so, so good. But obviously they're so busy and they have a job to do and they can't sit with you for hours on end. Um, I do know that when I came back into hospital and I was told that the fertility treatment had failed, you know, the nurses were brilliant. And they came and they sat with me and they held my hand and they cried with me too because we've been through it together they're like family you know um and so that kind of comfort and support from them was amazing for me it was brilliant but that was pretty much all I got and basically now a year and a half post-transplant um I have been offered um a counselling support through the NHS which is amazing and it is very good but you know even the the psychologist that I've been seeing has said this you really need this right at the beginning mm. of your treatment and um, so it's taken me like almost two and a half years to, to access some kind of psychological support yeah. so for me um yes it was massively lacking and it's something that I'm so passionate about and that is one of the things that by getting involved and in, in, with leukemia care um I just want to try and sort of 
push for the counselling or the psychological support for, for cancer patients because it's so vital, I feel. Mm. I, I feel like you're saying it's important not just for it to be there, but also for it to be when you actually need it. And, you know, people always talk of waiting times for NHS services and things, but I think this is one of the things where you just can't wait. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it, exactly. The need's there and it needs to be addressed sort of when the person's ready to do so. Yeah, yeah. And our NHS is amazing. Like, I feel so lucky to live here and be able to access this treatment because the NHS has saved my life on numerous occasions mm. and I just feel like I've had the best care from them. They've been incredible. Um, and so I realised that psychological support is not on the kind of top of the list in terms of funding, but I feel like it needs to change because the psychological support allows you, if you want it, you know, if you're actually open to having it and it's available to you, it allows you to have that kind of extra support through treatment, after treatment, during treatment, all sorts, you know, all throughout your your diagnosis and, and there on. It helps you and it helps to take the pressure off your friends and family as well. Yeah. Um, and it can help them too. And I just feel like it's such a huge part of treatment and recovery. Um and, you know, for all sorts of, of scenarios, it's just so good. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely lacking, but I want to try and make that change. Mm. Yeah, um, and we have a plan for that coming up soon. I don't think we're allowed to say the details yet, but hopefully <laughs> <Very exciting>. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, we can help a few more people. But, yeah, yeah. and obviously campaign, sure. as we are, you know, chatting to yeah. them. Definitely. Um, So you briefly, sorry, you briefly mentioned um, you are in early menopause. Do you want to just explain sort of how that came about and how you realised that was happening to you? Yeah, so I was told that um, after a stem cell transplant, I will go into medical menopause. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, uh, it was 100%. You know, this is not a maybe. This is this will happen. And um, for me, the reason really it happened was because I was having more chemo as part of the conditioning for the transplant, but also total body irradiation, which is radiotherapy on your whole body. It's really intense, and mm. although it does a lot of good in terms of the stem cell transplant uh, and allowing it to work properly, uh, it also damages a lot of things in your body and one of them is your fertility and your ovaries so um, I knew that after that I would then be in menopause and I am so it was instant it was straight away um, and I'm slap bang in the middle of it now so um, yeah and I see specialists about it who have confirmed that Mm. Um, so yeah so it's a huge thing for somebody who is in their early 30s, you know, um, or anybody really, it's a huge thing, but especially if you're of an age where you shouldn't be going into menopause, um, it's really scary and it's frightening and 
it's not only the fact that you're going into menopause, but then you then have a whole world of um, side effects and symptoms that you also have to deal with on top of all of the side effects and symptoms that you've had from the, the mm-hmm. transplant and your treatment. Um, so it's like a it's a massive blow, and the fact that your body has just been thrown into it sort of overnight is is really uh, hard, and the, it's just really difficult to kind of get your head around it, really. Um, yeah. So yeah, so that's um, that's where I am at the moment. I guess there's a bit of taboo about the menopause generally, and. Uh, whether the treatment available works or whether it has side effects and things. Has it been easy for you to get help for that? Or has it been a it been difficult to talk about it with with healthcare professionals still? Yeah, so for me it was difficult to get the initial consultation with the healthcare professional who would be able to to help me with this side of things Mm. Um, and it did take a long long time to get the referral which I think definitely needs to change because it should all be sort of set up as part of your aftercare treatment really following a transplant you kind of I I feel personally that I had the transplant and then was kind of left to my own devices to find out what I needed to do next in terms of aftercare and and things like that yeah Um, and my consultants were very good and so I would say to them you know what what do I need to do but it was very much up to me to then source this um which it shouldn't be like that really um and I realized again it's probably just because the NHS is is so busy um and so there's just things maybe that are out there in place but you're not aware of them um and definitely for the menopause I found there is this huge taboo around it um especially if you go through it early you know Mm. and young um and there's this kind of feeling of um you're past it you know you're only 30 you've gone through menopause you're past it and there's there's a whole load of sort of um stereotypes about menopause and, and things like that but um it's not a laughing matter, especially when you go through it and you're not, you don't want to, you know, to mm. me, this was devastating to be going through the menopause in my thirties. Um, and I was having to deal with things like the hot flushes and which are just really debilitating, um, on top of trying to recover from a transplant. Um, so yeah. And I do think it's kind of, it's not seen as a priority post-transplant to, to get you onto the kind of hormone treatment if you want to. So HRT um, and things like that are kind of just left a bit. They're not seen as urgent or they weren't in my case anyway. So I really had to, to fight to see a specialist about it and then get the, the, the proper sort of hormone treatment. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of of issues surrounding that or at least there was for me I can't speak for everybody but that's how I found it yeah Yeah. I think a running theme of the conversation has been the post-treatment period is probably lacking as you say we can't speak for everyone but I know from experience talking to other patients that it's definitely an area regardless of what the needs of the person are those needs aren't really being 
um, not addressed, but just, you know, recognised probably is the right word. They're not, it's not really being seen as as important as the treatment phase. Yeah. 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 And I imagine you're not in that acute phase of your illness where you need emergency treatment and everything has to be, you know, immediate or or kind of um, fast-tracked, if you like. So you're not in that phase anymore. Um, and you're not going into hospital as an inpatient. So if you're an outpatient, you're not seeing your medical team as much. You don't need to anymore. Um, so you're kind of out of the loop a little bit. Um, and so I think that's where the issue kind of starts started for me is that I was out of the loop and therefore I didn't realize you know what what do I need to do next what who do I see uh, what help is out there for me and I think you know for me I would ask my CNSs my clinical nurse specialists who were brilliant they were so good always at the end of the phone even now you know a year and a half later I can still ring them at any time and, and ask them questions they were really helpful mm. uh, my consultants were brilliant as well you know I didn't like keep nagging them but if I go in for a clinic appointment I'll go in with a set of questions and ask them things and they've always been really helpful so it's just a case of, of asking really yeah. I now have a very good relationship with a new GP who looks after me and they're very knowledgeable and they 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 make extra time for me at appointments because they know that I'm a complex case you know so they they are finally taking me seriously which is brilliant um so I do feel like you know I can ask them questions but if you don't know what you're asking about or what you need it's very difficult yeah um yeah the aftercare treatment is 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 tough and like I said earlier you know that's when a lot of your external support kind of drops off Mm. as well from friends and family because they think that you're okay um you're fixed kind of thing in their eyes and also there's a pressure to start to get back to work and get back to normal and look after yourself again and it is really tough it was like well for me it still is really tough and I find it extremely hard on a daily basis to try and sort of keep going and 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 get on with life now that everything has changed you know because you feel like a different person um so yeah it's the post treatment the aftercare is vital it really is yeah i agree um the last question about you really um have you any advice for um people who are experiencing changes in their appearance so it's quite well known that people with cancer tend to lose their hair or and experience various appearance uh changes their appearance but i guess some people might say for for a woman your hair is represents something a little bit different to a man so do you have any advice for other ladies or men who are going through appearance changes like that yeah, so, yeah, I lost my hair twice during my cancer treatment. Obviously, first, when I initially had the, the first chemo, so during my first sort of six weeks in hospital, not only had I just been told I had cancer and then went straight into treatment and, and almost lost my life uh, on numerous occasions, uh, I also lost my hair. Yeah. And for me, it was really, really sad because, I had beautiful hair. <laughs> like, yeah. I loved the hair, and I used to sort of be really proud of it. It was, it was naturally very blonde, 
I'd never dyed it throughout my life and it was really long and um, lovely. You know, I used to get comments on my hair um, and I loved it. And then for it all to just fall out literally overnight was really, really sad. And I just felt really like I'd lost a part of my identity. And I also hated the way I looked. You know, I, I thought I looked horrendous. I just, I had no hair. I was so thin. I'd lost loads of weight. I had loads of scabs all over and abscesses all over my face and, you know, a Hickman line coming out of my chest and stuff like this. So I felt really, really um, awful and ugly, really. That's how I felt. Yeah. Um and I realised that it was quite shocking for friends who were visiting me to see me like that, you know. And I could see it on their faces, this kind of look of shock when they first saw me. Um, so that was the first time my hair fell out. And then it started to grow back again um, whilst I was having the arsenic treatments because arsenic doesn't affect your hair. So it started to grow back. And mm. actually, I just thought, right, you know what, I'm going to have a bit of fun with this. Um, and I embraced it, and I rolled with it, and I ended up having like a pink Mohican <laughs> at one point, and then, I, and then I dyed it purple, and it was just fun, it was great, and you know, my friends used to say to me, wow, you're so edgy and like funky, you know, <laughs> and I, for once, I didn't feel like a cancer patient, I felt like actually a pretty trendy person you know <laughs> which for people who know me I'm not that trendy I'm not that cool um, but yeah it was actually it was really nice to not have a headscarf on or a hat on you know and basically when I had my headscarf on I felt like I almost had this um, arrow pointing to me saying you know cancer patient um, and people would sort of do a double take when you walk past them and I just feel uncomfortable you know I just felt really yeah, uncomfortable is, is the word, really. Um, and I, I do think as, as a woman and as a, for a man, you know, it does, it's such a massive part of your identity, I think, your hair. Mm. Um, and so it can affect how you feel. It definitely made me feel less feminine when I didn't have hair. Um, and although I was given, I just felt uncomfortable in it because... Um, it was constantly slipping or my head was itchy or hot and and it just didn't really suit me. So I never really wore my wig. I just wore headscarves and kind of made them as funky as I could really. Um, and then, yeah, so I had my pink Mohican and I went into the transplant and knowing that my hair would fall out again, mm. um, which it did for the second time. Um, and I thought, oh, it's going to be fine. You know, it's fallen out before. I know what to expect. Um, but actually, it hit me just as hard the second time. And I was in hospital again as an inpatient when it fell out. But it was still really, really traumatic. Um, so, yeah, it was it was really tough. So that's one of the biggest sort of appearance changes, like you said, for people going through cancer. Um, now it's grown back again. And I'm very lucky to have... Um, a sort of full head of, of thick hair. For me, it's been slightly different because it's grown back a lot darker than my natural colour, which mm. I have found very odd. Um, again, I feel like I'm just stolen a part of my identity it's taken away my nice blonde hair. But, you know, now I've got hair back again and that's, that's good. Um, and so I, I can dye it. I can dye it blonde again. 
is fine. Um, it's just a change and it's another loss. You know, cancer for me represents a lot of loss. Um, mm. And so, yes, I've lost my, my blonde hair and my kind of identity. But there are other appearance changes that happen. For instance, I've got quite a few scars now from, say, my Hickman line and also um, just abscesses and things that I had. Um, and I can't speak for people who have had surgery through cancer because I haven't had to undertake that, fortunately. Um, and I know that it must be absolutely traumatic and devastating to, to have to go through that. Um, but for me, yeah, scars have been a massive issue. Also, the sort of weight gain or weight loss during treatment, um, mainly because of sort of treatments that you're on as well can cause that. And that is hard to deal with. Um, skin changes, you know, rashes, all sorts of things mm. can can make you your appearance differ. Um, so yeah, it, it is traumatic and it um, it's hard. It's very hard. You know, once you start to kind of look more like you did for um, treatment, I think you think, oh, well, you look okay. You look back to normal again, so therefore you're fine. Yeah. But, you know, these these experiences can often have sort of deep, deep um, traumatic consequences on you. Um, and I often find that, you know, I have flashbacks to various moments throughout my treatment and they can bring me out in a cold sweat because you've been through a lot of traumatic and really heavy things, you know, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, mm. surgery all sorts of things, you know, and they are traumatic and they can, at the time you just kind of get through it because you have to and you don't actually sort of deal with it. You don't take it all in and, and work through it. And I think it's, it's mainly post-treatment that you these things sort of pop up again and you think, right, okay, I've got to try and somehow deal with that and come to terms with it. Yeah. Um, and appearance changes is one of those things, you know, I didn't feel like me, but I threw myself into it at times and thought, yeah, you know, let's just embrace it and, and roll with it. And that, for me, was what got me through a lot of the, the times when I just felt like crying and did cry. I spent a lot of time crying about the fact that, you know, I wasn't me anymore. I looked in the mirror and it didn't look like me. Mm. Um, and that's tough. It is really, really, really tough. Um, I guess we're so, kind of yeah. sorry. I guess we're kind of back to the same theme of sort of recognizing everyone's journey is different, but also there's a common theme of after treatment you're you're still dealing with a lot, <laughs> and I don't think that's had much recognition in the conversation about cancer. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Mm. You know, it takes a lot of. Um, courage and bravery and just determination really to to get through the diagnosis to get through any treatment you know and if you are one of the fortunate ones who can manage to get to remission um it's like that is not the finish line you know yeah um you have to keep going and it's a it's a long hard slog really um, physically and mentally and emotionally mm. to try and get get your life back to some form of not normality because it's never going to be normal again. It's a, it's a new normal. It's a new, it's a whole new life really. Um, 
Yeah. And you basically have to sh- to shift your perspective. I mean, you know, cancer diagnosis and treatment, it has, I wouldn't say it's given me happy times, but it has given me things in life, sort of a new perspective, a mm. new outlook on life, really. Um, and yeah, it doesn't mean that I'm just going to, you know, pack it all in and go traveling the world which is you know at at times you do want to do that but it just gives you an outlook on life that makes you stop and think sometimes and think okay is that really important is it really you know worth me getting so worked up about this and the answer is usually no but then it also throws into the mix like huge life-changing things such as the fertility issues and the way that you you feel the way that you look you know how you can live your life again you might not be able to go back to work again or you might have to change jobs or whatever things change you know um and really it's kind of recognizing that when treatment ends it's not the end of the story it's not the end of the the process it's it's Mm. ongoing for the rest of your life really um and I know for, for me and a lot of acute leukemia patients, I can speak for us in that we'll probably or we will need to see consultants and specialists for the rest of our lives. You know, that's it now. We're in the system. Um, and even if it's once every six months or once a year, you're still going to see a medical professional. And for me, that's reassuring to know that. But it also means that this is going to be a part of my life now, you know, Um and I've just got to get used to it. And for me, it's not just one um, healthcare professional I see. It's quite a few of them in different yeah. departments. Um, yeah, and I still have to have three monthly bone marrow biopsies. You know, that one procedure is traumatic enough. And I've had, you know, 11 of them so far. Um, and just because you've had a lot of them and you have them regularly doesn't take away the fact that it's an enormous thing, you know, and it, it's stressful and it's worrying. Um, so, yeah, I think there's still a lot of um, aftercare and post-treatment care that, that perhaps needs kind of fine-tuning or improving maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah. Definitely emerged as a theme <laughs> during our conversation. Yeah. Here. It's definitely something we should all keep striving towards, I agree. The only thing I really want to say, yeah. and I've probably said this throughout the conversation anyway. Well, feel free anyway. That it's just, I mean, I think our NHS is wonderful. That's one of the major things I want to get across. Yeah. And also, I just think that I just want to thank all of the women and men who talk out about their um, cancer and their, their lives, really, and they talk about their stories and they do it with the aim of helping other people. And I just think, you know, charities and um platforms such as leukemia care who allow people to do that and to help them do this is brilliant um and i just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who does that because it helps people like me who are going through it and need need that support and also to know you're not on your own which is one of the biggest things throughout Mm -hmm. this whole cancer um, experience for me is that you're not on your own I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bloodstream. You can read more about Kate's story on our website. Just head to www.leukemiacare.org.uk and find the inspirational story section. See you next month. If you would like support after diagnosis or are affected by a blood cancer, you can visit our website 
www.leukemiacare.org.uk, email support at leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline 08088 010 444. The helpline's open Monday to Friday, 8.30 to 5.30 and 7 till 10pm on Thursday and Friday evenings. <laughs>